I invite you to turn in your Bibles to Exodus chapter 20. Exodus 20. You'll need a Bible to follow along, so these brothers have some. And they're going to make their way to the back. So if you need a Bible, get their attention, and they'll get one to you. Mark that Exodus chapter 20 for you. As most of you know, I've had three Sundays out of the pulpit due to hip replacement surgery. And I want to publicly thank Brother Jim Steppenbacher and Pastors Larry and Rich for their outstanding work in filling in while I was gone. Some things sound right and true the first time you hear them, but after you think about them, not so much. Over the years, I've heard and read preachers and Christian authors make the point that all of life matters to God by saying things like, all of life is sacred. Or, for the Christian, every bush is a burning bush and all ground is holy ground. Now, the idea is a good one, namely that there is no area of life outside of God's interest. There's really no such thing as the secular. The truth is God has a role in and cares about everything. So, therefore, many reason that if all of life is sacred and there is no distinction between the sacred and the secular, then the gathered worship of the church can and should include the ordinary activities of life. And so virtually anything can be brought into worship. And this, by the way, friends, explains much of what goes on and passes for worship in evangelical churches today. And still others ask, since all of life is sacred, then what makes us set aside a time for worship like we're doing this morning? What makes us do that like it's anything special or necessary? After all, if all of life is equally worshipped, then why do we set aside time each week for something called a worship service? Well, we do it because it was done in the Bible, but that just pushes the question back to why did they do it? Now, last week, Pastor Rich delivered an excellent message from Romans chapter 12 and verse 1, a verse that presents the Bible's expansive view of worship. Worship is service, and that service is to be carried out in the totality of our lives. So again, then, it raises the question, why do we set aside time for something called worship if all of our lives are to be the service of worship? And to answer this, we need to recognize that the Bible presents worship in two senses. What theologian John Frame calls worship in the broad sense and worship in the narrow sense. Worship in the broad sense is what's meant by all of life is sacred. And so worship is the totality of a committed life. And that's a true and biblical concept. But worship in the narrow sense refers to a slice of our lives that we carve out specifically to center our attention on God. And the Bible teaches that God wants us to do this. Now today, as we continue our series in the Ten Commandments, we come to the fourth of those where God says in verse 8, Remember the Sabbath day by keeping it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, neither you nor your son or daughter, 
nor your male or female servant, nor your animals, nor any foreigner residing in your towns. For in six days, the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea and all that is in them. But he rested on the seventh day. Therefore, the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Today, we're going to see why God wants us to deliberately and intentionally and regularly set aside time to worship him. Let's pray and ask God to help us as we do. Father, we thank you again for gathering us. You have gathered us. You are the one who has worked in our circumstances so that we can be here. You are the one who has worked in our hearts so that we want to be here. And now, Lord, our hearts are quieted before you. Our minds are focused upon you and upon your word. We ask you then, Lord, to instruct us from your word regarding your desire and indeed your demand that we set aside time to worship you regularly. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Now, there's an outline for today's message in the program you should have received when you came in. We do that every week. And then the first point of that outline, it gives the background for why God wants us to worship worship him regularly. And that's because in the background of this command is the fact that life is to be centered on God. We have that point, guys, on the screen. Thank you. Life is to be centered on God. From this very first verse, the Bible makes clear that life is centered on God. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Jesus said the greatest of all the commandments in all the Bible is to love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, and with all of your mind. And this priority of the Creator God is seen in the very Ten Commandments that we're considering in this series because those ten are divided into two tablets. One tablet of the ten deals with our relationship to God and the other deals with our relationship to one another. And of course, the first of those sets of commands is about how we relate to God because He's the priority. The very first of the Ten Commandments, you shall have no other gods before me. And then you shall not make for yourself an image in the form of anything in heaven above or on earth beneath or in the waters below. You shall not bow down to them or worship them. And then the third command that we saw about a month ago, you shall not misuse the name of the Lord your God. And now, remember the Sabbath day by keeping it holy. The seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. The Sabbath was a token or a symbol of the covenant that God gave through Moses to Israel. The major covenants that God gave each had their symbols as a reminder of the covenant itself. In the covenant that God made with Noah, for example, he gave the rainbow as its symbol. The token of the Abrahamic covenant was the rite of circumcision. Circumcision was the symbol of the Abrahamic covenant. But when we come to the Mosaic covenant, we find that God gave the Sabbath as the symbol of his covenant relationship with Israel. The Bible says this later in the book of Exodus. The Lord said to Moses, say to the Israelites, you must observe my Sabbaths. This will be a sign between me and you for generations to come. So you know that I am the Lord who makes you holy. Now That's the background to the Sabbath command. 
Life is about God and it's important enough to him that he made it the sign of the covenant. And it means a number of things, including, as I say in your outline, that our schedules must be centered on God. God set the pattern for this in creation, in the creation week. Our passage says in verse 11, in six days, the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea and all that is in them. But he rested on the seventh day. That goes all the way back to Genesis chapter one, where we're told, or excuse me, Genesis chapter two. By the seventh day, God had finished the work he had been doing. So on the seventh day, he rested from all his work. Now, when it says God rested in Genesis chapter two and then again in Exodus chapter 20 and verse 11, the Hebrew word has the idea of ceasing from activity. Well, it's true that the Bible speaks in passages like I just mentioned and in a few others of God ceasing from creation and being refreshed. That's what we call an anthropomorphism. It's assigning human characteristics to God in order to help us relate. The truth is, friends, God never gets tired. God didn't finish his work of creation kind of huffing and puffing and then needing to catch a nap. The Bible says in Psalm 121, the maker of heaven and earth will neither slumber nor sleep. God is all powerful. And that omnipotence means that everything that he does is effortless, effortless. And for an omnipotent God, there's always as much power of God left over after the fact, after the exercise, as there was to begin with. His power and his energy are not diminished in any way like they are for us. So what did God cease from? What did God rest from? It wasn't because he was tired. What he ceased from was his work of creation. This was the end of his creation program. And so he ceased that. He rested from creation. Creation was now complete. But it doesn't mean that he stopped working in other ways. In fact, Jesus said, My Father is always at work. But God's program of original creation was over, but he continues his work of preservation, upholding the laws and the properties and the powers and the processes of the universe. He also continued working through providence. Providence is that divine control in bringing all things to their preordained and preplanned and purposed goal. And in God's providence, overseeing his world, he does that through secondary and tertiary means. He uses people, he uses events, and he works in and through those people and events to accomplish his purpose. Just as a quick aside here. It would be very helpful to all of us in our Christian walk if we would understand the difference between miracle and providence. Creation was a miracle. God did that out of nothing. But now God uses means, he uses people and events, secondary causes to carry out his plan. Please hear this. The work of God in his providence is just as majestic as the work of God in his miracle. So you don't need to be looking around to find God things out there. You know, we say that stuff, don't we? That was a God thing. 
And it was a God thing because it was some kind of unusual circumstance and therefore we term it to be sort of a grade B miracle. God's sort of intervening. The truth is God is at work all the time in his world, but he is doing it most often through the normal processes that we are to see his hand in and to give him thanks for. And in that sense, God is working, but God is working now, but he has rested from a program of creation. There has been no such program since day six of the original creation week. And friends, it's God who gives us our days. And it's God who knows the very number of those days that each of us will have. They all belong to him. And so we need to submit our schedules then to him. And he gave us this pattern in ceasing from work and for us ceasing and resting. And he in the law that he gave in the Ten Commandments was deadly serious about us carrying about that being carried out. Deadly serious, literally. The Bible says this, anyone who desecrates the Sabbath is to be put to death. Those who do any work on that day must be cut off from their people. For six days work is to be done, but the seventh day is a day of Sabbath rest, holy to the Lord. Whoever does any work on the Sabbath day is to be put to death. Y'all scared yet? Now, we are no longer under the law of Moses. Including the Sabbath law. So there is no death penalty for failing to schedule time for God. The Bible makes this clear in a number of places. If you know people, if you have friends who have gotten mixed up in the false notion that we are somehow under the law or parts of the law, then they have badly misunderstood the Bible. Colossians chapter 2 says, Having canceled out the certificate of debt consisting of decrees against us, which was hostile to us, he has taken it. He, Jesus, has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. Now, when that verse refers to decrees against us, which was hostile to us, it's referring to the Mosaic law. And then just two verses later, therefore, because that has been nailed to the cross and taken out of the way, therefore, no one is to act as your judge in regard to food or drink or in respect to a festival or a new moon, notice, or of a Sabbath day. So we are no longer under the law directly, even the Ten Commandments. But the principles embodied in those commandments carry on. And in fact, nine of the Ten Commandments in Exodus 20 are repeated in the New Testament. The one of the ten that's not repeated in the New Testament is the sign of the covenant. The Sabbath command. Because that old covenant has been replaced by the new covenant in Jesus. But God's pattern in creation and his command to Israel in the law give us a principle, a pattern to follow based on the truth That life is centered on God. And so our schedules must be also, and I say in your outline, our focus must be centered on God. We schedule time to especially focus on God and the fact that we are entirely His. That's what happened on the Sabbath day and that's what we do on Sunday. Now, when they did this, they in the Old Testament, they didn't leave home. They didn't pack up their kids on the family donkey, as it were, and then go to the central altar. It's not how their worship was carried on. 
It was not so much an assembly that gathered people on a regular basis like we are in the church. But when it came to the ritual worship that was prescribed for them in the law, the sacrifices were doubled on the Sabbath. So even though they weren't at the central altar, they were at home and they were observing the Sabbath. At the central altar, there were two lambs in the morning and two lambs at night. And the idea was that here's the nation, as it were, going up in smoke and the burnt offering being on the altar, being at the disposal of God, being all God's and especially so on the Sabbath day. And there in their homes, they would focus their attention on God, having ceased from their labor and resting from that labor. They were supposed to be at the disposal of God, similar to what we saw last week in Romans chapter 12 and verse 1, saying giving ourselves as living sacrifices to emphasize this. There was this doubling of the sacrifices on the Sabbath day. And there was not only the weekly Sabbath that called the nation of Israel's attention to God, but there were other holy days, days that were also considered Sabbaths. They were not to work. And under the Old Testament law, there were all kinds of feasts as well. And God had put at their disposal all kinds of ways for them to remember to think about Him, to praise Him, to worship Him. And God gave these events and rituals as an ongoing reminder of himself. And verse 10 says that everyone of Exodus 20, verse 10 says that everyone was to observe it. Families, servants, animals, aliens, that is Gentiles, sojourners in the land of Israel, everyone. And they were to contemplate God. They were to recall his gifts And to remember that at the central altar in Jerusalem, there was a doubling of the sacrifices to make sure that God accepted the nation and their consecration before him. And then the individual participating in that, in that way, if their heart was right, they could identify with that. And in effect, say, Lord, I'm all yours. In effect, Lord, I'm on the altar, so to speak. And they were reminded to do that at least every seven days. God wants To be focused on regularly. And so he built it into the system of worship of the Old Testament. And even though we are not under the law, and so it's now done differently, still, as we're going to see, it's something that continued into the New Testament and continues on today. God wants to be focused on and worshipped regularly. Because life is centered on God. But I say in your outline as well. Therefore, our lives are to be centered on God. Now, there are many ways in which this can be applied to us. But I have three in your outline. The first is we should see work as a means of worship. The Sabbath... To cease and then for us to rest assumes work. Since it's work that is to cease on the Sabbath. Work is a good thing, believe it or not. It's a four-letter word, but it's still a good thing. And contrary to what many people think, it is not, work is not a result of the fall, the entrance of sin into God's world. God gave work in creation before the entrance of sin. 
It's part of what is called the dominion mandate that God gave to humanity to rule earth on his behalf. And after God had created the man and the woman, the end of Genesis chapter 1, the Bible tells us God said to them, fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky and over every living creature that moves on the ground. That is, have dominion over what I've created. You are going to be my, my regent on my behalf. And then in Genesis chapter 2, the Bible tells us the Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and to take care of it. Now, all of this, subdue the earth, rule over it, take care of the garden, is all before the entrance of sin. Work is something that God assigned to humanity. That's something that we do on God's behalf. So it's not part of the curse. What is part of the curse is the difficulty of work. And that's a consequence of sin. When you come to Genesis chapter 3 and the man and the woman have disobeyed God. And God is meeting out consequences to the serpent and to the woman. He turns to Adam and he says this. Cursed is the ground because of you. Through painful toil you will eat food from it all the days of your life. By the sweat of your brow you will eat your food. Now that work that I've assigned to you is going to become all the more difficult. Because of sin. But work, though often difficult, is nevertheless a gift from the Creator and part of what it means to fulfill our responsibilities as His vice regents in His world. But friends, hear this. Work is a means, not an end. Work is a means to a much greater end. In our work, we do that work, the Bible tells us, as unto the Lord, And we are not people who live to work. And by being willing to observe the Sabbath in the Old Testament, and then in ways that we will see later for us today, by willing to being willing to set aside time from work and cease from work. We show that our work. Is not an end. We show that we believe that the Sabbath required a willingness to give up work. And in giving up that work, it meant giving up money. You know the phrase, time is, right? So if you're in an agrarian society and you have to stop plowing the fields for an entire day, then you're losing money. But in doing that, the person who set that aside said that what I'm able to glean for the six days comes from the hand of God. And if God says I set it aside, then I set it aside. I believe it came from him and I believe it's for him. And my money and my work are not an end, but rather a means to the end of glorifying God. And you'll only be willing to do that. You'll only be willing to set it aside, set the work aside. If you see that work is a means of worship, it's not an end. As I say, as those fields were not plowed on the Sabbath, people lost money, but they showed that they believed God was more valuable than money. In our own country, some of you may remember the days when there were so-called blue laws that prohibited businesses from opening on Sunday. And there was a day not that long ago where businesses just didn't open on Sunday at all. People lost money. But they lost money for a good cause, signifying that they believed God was the one who gave their employment and showing that they believe that the giver is more important than the gift. 
The work itself is a means of worship and the willingness to cease from it is likewise an act of worship. We should see our work as a means of worship. Secondly, we should see our leisure as a means of worship. Taking time off to focus on God is a good thing, as seen in the Sabbath command. Whenever we take time off, we should use it to reflect on God and his blessings. The Sabbath was a time to remember all of God's gifts, to remember all of the creator's bounty, and then to worship and bless his name for them. The Sabbath freed them from time-consuming work. It freed them from the six days in which they were to have gainful employment. And then the seventh day could be used to recall God's blessings, to recall God's goodness in creation. They could reflect on their health and their crops and their children and all the blessings that God gave as that was a day to reaffirm that God is creator and sustainer of the world. And to remember the Sabbath meant that the participant identified the seven-day-a-week rhythm of life as belonging to the creator. And as they had this time off from work, they were to contemplate God. They didn't just sit around and contemplate the universe in general. They were thinking about God and his relationship to them specifically. And it was a very, very beneficial thing. This was something that a good God and a good and gracious God gave to his people to observe on a regular basis. That's why I've titled this series in the Ten Commandments, Laying Down the Love. Because very often, we think of life under the law as being hard on people. And we have a very, very low view of the day-to-day communion with God that people would have under the Mosaic law. But as you read the Old Testament, that's not the impression you get. They love this. This is why you could find David and the psalmist saying, Lord, I love your law. I love to meditate in it day and day and night. They love this. If you think about it, if what God said to do was actually done and was allowed to work, and they were keeping the law, there were many, many beneficial things about it. One day off in seven. One year off in seven. Two years off in a row in the 49th and 50th sabbatical years called the Jubilee year. Two years in a row, all in favor? And all of this allowed them time to consider the greatness and goodness of God and to thank him for his many blessings. We should take time off from work. And whatever time we have, we should use in similar ways. We should see our work as a means of worship and our leisure as a means of worship. And then I say lastly in your outline, we should prioritize the Lord's day. The resurrection of Jesus changed everything, including the day of worship. Because of the death of Jesus freed the Christian from obligation to the law, and because he was raised on the first day of the week, the Sabbath ceased to be a legal obligation. And the day of worship for the Christian moved from the seventh day, Saturday, to the first day, Sunday. So here we are. That's how it came about, because 
In all four of the Gospels, we have the resurrection of Jesus recorded. And in all of those, they mentioned that it was on the first day of the week. In the commemoration of the resurrection of the Lord Jesus on the first day of the week, Christians now, no longer obligated to the law, moved the day of worship to the first day of the week, Sunday. And they gave it a title, the Lord's Day. When you come in here every week, you get a program. And in the program, when you open that up on the left side at the top, it says this, the Lord's Day. That's what it says today. That's what it says every week. The Lord's Day. That title, the Lord's Day, is from the Bible. John used it in Revelation chapter 1. He says, on the Lord's Day, I was in the Spirit. And it's called the Lord's Day because it's a day for lordship. It's a day when Christ is to be especially acknowledged as Lord because that was the day he rose from the dead. And as the Bible says, he became the firstborn of all of those that sleep, of all of those who have died. He became the preeminent one, the triumphant one over death, the first one to come back from the dead, never to die again. And that's his lordship. And because of that, because of that, friends, we can be saved this morning. Because of that, we have relationship with him. And I think that explains what the Bible says about what was then done and is now to be done on the Lord's Day. What did Christians do on the Lord's Day? Because it was a day of lordship. They did at least a couple of things. One, they gathered in assembly. The Bible tells us in Acts chapter 20, on the first day of the week, we came together. On Sunday, we came together. And when they gathered, they did things like observe the Lord's table. That very same verse says, on the first day of the week, we came together to break bread. And when they gathered together regularly, there was also preaching. In fact, this very passage in Acts chapter 20 is the occasion when Paul preached a message. But he preached a message so long that a young man fell asleep, fell out a third story window all the way to the ground and he died. Bible says he fell into a deep sleep while Paul was preaching, falls out the window, dies. Paul raised him from the dead, and then they continued the service till morning. So the moral of all of that is, I do not want to hear that my sermons are too long. (laughs) They gathered on the Lord's Day on Sunday for preaching, for communion. The Bible tells us they took collection. 1 Corinthians 16, about the collection, on the first day of every week, each one of you should set aside a time of money in keeping with your income. The Bible tells us other things that Christians did when they came together for worship, public reading of scripture, prayer, singing, all things that we have done today and for that very reason. Justin Martyr was a second century Christian who wrote of early church worship. And he said that Sunday services included a reading from the Bible, an exhortation, that is a sermon, prayer, communion, and a collection, which is pretty much what we found in the book of Acts and what we do today when we gather. So friends, whatever else you choose to do on the Lord's day, the gathering of God's people like we've done this morning must not be neglected. 
And as you decide what else, if anything, to do, do it consistent with the Lordship of Christ as it is the Lord's day. God desires and even demands that we worship him regularly. And for us, that's on the Lord's day, on Sunday. A lot of stuff I could say about that. A lot of lessons I learned as a kid that I thank God for now, not so much when I was a kid, that taught me the value of the Lord's Day. Some of you have heard me say that I loved playing hockey when I was a kid, but we always had a game on Sunday morning. And I played in exactly zero games on Sunday morning. Zero. You can play hockey. If they'll let you be on the team without missing church to play hockey on Sunday. I didn't like that as a kid. But my parents taught me a very valuable lesson. And over the years, I've talked to many people who've taken what I said at the beginning today and they've drawn a false conclusion. They rightly understand that we can and should worship God in all we do, whatever it is. But then they make the false leap to conclude that gathering on Sunday is not necessary. I've heard things like this many times. I can worship God while I'm fishing or hunting or playing golf or whatever it is they say. And the truth is, worship in the broad sense, that's absolutely true. But God says he wants to be worshipped in a particular way and on a particular day. And we don't get to lay that aside for our personal preference. To put it another way, friends, we are indeed to worship God all the time. But we're also to make time for worship. You worship God all the time. But you make time for worship. So here's your take-home truth. The use of our time must reflect the priority of worshiping God. Let's pray and ask God to help us. Our Father, we thank you again for gathering us as your people. We thank you for instructing us in your word about yourself, about your character, about your deeds, about what you are like and what you desire, therefore, and demand from us. You have not left us to grope in darkness to try to figure it out. You've instructed us in your word. And now, Lord, we ask you to help us because we are frail spiritually. We are forgetful hearers. So, Lord, cement these principles in our minds. And may they find their way into our daily and weekly and yearly and lifelong routines. That we are to focus on you because life is to be centered on you. As we do that. May you be glorified in our lives. And Lord, may you use the glory that you are producing through us to emanate to others so that they see the light of Christ through us. And by that, may you be glorified not only in us, but in others in your world. We pray all of this in the name of Jesus. Amen.